0: From the School of International Service at American University in Washington, this is Big World, where we talk about something in the world that really matters. On the big stage that is global affairs, some actors are bit players and some are cast in leading roles, but usually for a short time in the grand scheme of history. And then there are those who seem never to really leave the stage. In Israeli politics, certain names loom large over the past 50 years. Begin, Rabin, Sharon, Perez... But one man has outlasted them all, currently serving a fifth term as prime minister. He has redefined what it means for Israel to be a Jewish democratic state, and over time has developed close relationships with leaders like Viktor Orban, Vladimir Putin, and Jair Bolsonaro. Charges of corruption and indictments of fraud and bribery have trailed him, but so far failed to end his political career. The shadow he casts is long, and his influence on Israel past, present, and future is undeniable. So today, we're talking about Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his outsized role in Israeli politics. We're talking about the Netanyahu effect. I'm Kay Summers, and I'm joined by Guy Ziv. Guy is a professor in the School of International Service and has worked at the U.S. Department of State on Capitol Hill and for nonprofit organizations that promote American involvement in Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking. He's the author of Why Hawks Become Doves, Shimon Peres, and Foreign Policy Change in Israel. Guy, thanks for joining, big world.
1: My pleasure, thanks for having me.
0: Remote and socially distanced continue to be our watchwords at this time. So we're recording from afar. So we're gonna get right into it. Guy, Benjamin Netanyahu has been Israel's prime minister since 2009, but that wasn't the first time he was elected into the role, obviously. He also served as prime minister from 1996 to 99 after the assassination of then prime minister, Yitzhak Rabin. For anyone unfamiliar with Netanyahu, Can you briefly give some background on him, his party, and how he rose to power? He he has quite an interesting background way before he was kind of known globally.
1: Netanyahu grew up in an ideologically right-wing home. It was a very ideological home. And by all accounts, it was his father, Ben Sion Netanyahu, who was a scholar and an activist that had a huge impact on his worldview. Uh, this family adhered to the Greater Israel ideology uh, of the revisionist Zionist movement, meaning that they rejected the notion of territorial partition and even territorial compromise. And so, the the idea of creating a Palestinian state on land that belonged to the Jewish people is simply unthinkable. And uh, his party, the Likud Party, has long, which is long the dominant party in Israel, is based on this ideology even though today it's not quite as ideological. Um, There are tribal loyalties to this party and most Israelis identify as right-wing so naturally they'll vote for Likud in the elections. But uh, back to Netanyahu, the closest person in his life was actually his older brother Yoni whom he lost in the famed hostage rescue operation at Entebbe and then decided to, um, dedicate his life and his career to fighting terrorism and to, um, securing Israel. And, uh, his family spent many years in the United States, which is why Netanyahu speaks fluent English with an American accent. And it's his media savviness that helped get him into politics. He was discovered by another Israeli politician who was then a diplomat. He was the ambassador to Washington, Moshe Ahrens, who, um, really kind of recognized Netanyahu's uh, media skills and decided to bring him on as the number two at the embassy. So um, Netanyahu is the most media savvy politician Israel's ever had. He's the master of the soundbite. And so not coincidentally, he's now the longest serving prime minister in the country's history.
0: Often in the U.S. at this point, we hear about how the military has become removed from typical American life Because military service is not compulsory and people choose to make it a career and those who don't really rarely intersect with that life. Israel obviously has compulsory military service and Netanyahu um, having lost a brother in a military conflict. This is a different kind of personalization, I think, than we are used to with U.S. politics for why he would feel as he does about security and why he might be such a hardliner. Is that right?
1: Netanyahu's hardline attitudes stem from the, the ideology in which he grew up. But Israelis, most of them at least, serve in the army. And Netanyahu and his brother uh, decided that they were going to not only serve, but serve in the elite uh, unit, uh, Sayeret Matkal. So both of them uh, served in that elite unit. And what's interesting is uh, in the future, the commander, uh, Netanyahu's commander, Ehud Barak, and some of the other people who led his units, would challenge him in future elections. Barack, of course, defeated Netanyahu in the 1999 elections when he ran for re-election the first time.
0: And you mentioned that election. and He was out of power for about a decade. When Netanyahu came back to power in 2009, he endorsed a two-state solution of a Palestinian state alongside Israel, but he did so under the condition that the Palestinian state would be demilitarized and that Palestinians recognized Israel as a state of the Jewish people. So since then, 11 years later, how has his stance toward a two-state solution shifted and how has the shift impacted Israel and Palestinians specifically?
1: So I published a study on this very question in PSQ, Political Science Quarterly, last year in which I show that Netanyahu has never truly embraced the two-state solution. He gave a historic speech at Bar-Ilan University in June 2009, but it was really a tactical maneuver, and and it was done in response to pressure by President Obama. Uh, Netanyahu then adds conditions that would make it very difficult, if not impossible, for the Palestinians to accept. And then later on, he would come up with one excuse after another to ensure that it wasn't uh, that it wouldn't be realized. Uh, later on, he talked about a Palestinian state that wouldn't be fully sovereign. He talked about partial sovereignty. He talked about a mini state before he disavowed it altogether. And in contrast to his predecessors, he, he didn't negotiate earnestly in good faith because he never really believed in it. I should note, though, that he uh, nor does he support the so-called one state solution for that matter either, which is popular in some circles today. He doesn't Netanyahu doesn't really believe there is a solution, and even after all these years, he lacks a coherent vision. He sees himself as managing the conflict, not resolving it.
0: What currently are Netanyahu's annexation plans for West Bank territory? And for those who are unfamiliar with with the West Bank, what does that even mean when we talk about annexation of territory in the West Bank?
1: So the traditional idea when we talk about a two-state solution, we're talking about the original idea that the, the British came up with in 1937 when they had the mandate in Palestine, which was to split the land uh, and create uh, a Jewish state alongside an Arab state for the Palestinians. That's known as the 1937 partition plan. A decade later, when the UN is in charge, or I, I should say, uh, when, when the British, after the British hand back the, the mandate to the United Nations, uh, the UN comes up with its own partition plan. And uh, this was kind of the idea of preventing war from taking place. It's, it's to have you know, two states to share the land, to share the territory. Uh, this was something that Israel's founding father and first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, supported. And, uh, but it was rejected by, uh, by the Arab leadership. And so it never happened. And, and then there was a war and, and subsequent wars as well. For Netanyahu and and his father, and by the way, his father Ben Sion, that I, who I mentioned earlier, earlier, he uh, actually put out an ad, a full page ad in the Times, in the New York Times, opposing uh, the 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 partition, the UN partition idea. So this again stems, this goes way back, way back, the opposition to the idea of compromising over territory. So the idea of annexation is. Uh, Israel won the war in 1967. Um, it's it's it's. There's been this occupation, right, uh, of of territories, the Palestinian territories, but settlers regarded it as their territories because it was, you know, biblically um, Jewish land, and so uh, they disagree over, you know, who are the colonists here, uh, who are the indigenous inhabitants, uh, and who really, uh, who really should be there. And obviously, when, you're, when you kind of mix religion and politics, uh, it, it, invariably, you get tensions. Now, Netanyahu himself has never really been uh, an enthusiastic supporter of this idea of annexation. And, and frankly, if he was, he would have done it a long time ago, or at least try to do it a long time ago. But he's actually blocked such moves in the past. So why now? And here's where it's really important to bring in domestic Israeli politics. It's key. Netanyahu's base, and in particular the settlers and their lobby, is adamant about annexation. It's a very high priority for them, even though it's never been a priority for Netanyahu. And he's attuned to his base. And he sensed that when he was in trouble politically and legally, he needed to galvanize that base so that he can remain in power and uh, and obtain immunity from prosecution. He announced his intention to annex unilaterally parts of the West Bank On the eve of the elections. He made all these dramatic statements on the eve of each of the three rounds of elections that took place last year. And he concluded that Trump and only Trump would really give him the go ahead, which would enable him to deliver this gift to the settlers. And this would kind of be solidifying his legacy. This would be the legacy that he would leave. But he miscalculated because he was met with, well, he was also met with bad luck in terms of timing. Um, because of the coronavirus. But there was also a huge international outcry. There was a major pressure campaign to stop it. Uh, Jordan and other uh, friendly Arab allies uh, made it crystal clear to the Trump administration and to the Netanyahu government that they were not going to be uh, supportive of it. This could actually wreck the uh, relationship and the peace treaty that Israel has with Jordan. And then the Trump administration started to get cold feet and and decided to kind of hold off for a while. And meanwhile, Israel has been hit really hard with a second wave of, uh, of COVID, of the coronavirus. So the last thing on the minds of most Israelis is annexation. So for now, it's off the table, but it's still on Netanyahu's agenda. And he understands that he won't be able to make these annexation moves if Biden defeats Trump. So there's a very narrow window in which he can do this.
0: And I had read that there was even some internal resistance to this from the settlers themselves.
1: The settlers themselves have no internal resistance to the idea of annexation. They're all for it. What they don't like is the parts of the Trump plan that call for the creation of a Palestinian state. And so the the idea here was you accept the Trump plan in its totality. You can't just accept parts of it that you like and discard the rest of it. Of course, the Trump plan isn't really much of a plan, and the Palestinians have rejected it, and it wouldn't really leave them with much of a state. It certainly wouldn't be a contiguous state or a sovereign state, and um, and, and a big percentage of what would be their state would be turned over to the settlers. So it, it's really not much of a—I would say it's a non-starter, uh, The Trump uh, the Trump plan. But that's why some settlers have opposed it, others have supported it. And right now, as I said, it's it's off the table for the time being.
0: And Guy, Israel has long been known as one of the strongest democracies, particularly uh, in the Middle East, in their in their neighborhood of the world, as they like to say. And some of the kind of base things that you need for a a functioning democracy are free press uh, and rule of law, which we'll talk about in the next question. But first, with the with the free press, Netanyahu has been known for his obsession with the press and aiming to control. Israel's media, two of the corruption charges he was indicted on are related to the media. How do you think Netanyahu overall has impacted Israel's press freedom?
1: When he lost the uh, elections back in 1999, his reelection bid, he blamed it on what he felt was unfavorable media coverage, uh, biased media coverage that kind of had it out for him. And he reportedly told his associates that he needed his own media. And so he turned to the uh, cosmetics billionaire Ron Lauder uh, to buy a majority stake in what was then Channel 10. And years later, he turned to an even wealthier individual, the casino mogul Sheldon Adelson, who funded um, and founded Israel Hayom, which is the most widely read daily because it's free. And its growing impact actually led Freedom House to downgrade Israel's press to partly free in its 2015 report uh, because it really has destroyed some of the competition. And in the meantime, there have been additional media outlets that have been created to, to further Netanyahu's political agenda. For example, there's Channel 20, which is called the Heritage Channel, which is uh, very supportive of, of Netanyahu and his policies and, and the right wing in general. And his uh, he's be, and he's be, been so obsessed with the media that that obsession led him to keep the communications ministry for himself. He appointed himself as the communications minister, and only in the wake of the criminal investigations was he forced to relinquish it. And uh, and even then, he gave it to his loyalists. So he still more or less controlled it, even though um, he was no longer the officially the minister. And so. Two of the corruption cases involve offers that he gave, formal favors that he gave to these media tycoons in exchange for favorable news coverage. And so what's interesting here is that his obsession with the media um, hasn't just had a decidedly negative impact on Israel's democracy. it's, It's this obsession that ironically may end his career and possibly land him in prison, depending on how the trial goes.
0: And another one of those foundational pieces of democracy is rule of law. As we said, under Netanyahu, trust in Israel's Supreme Court has dropped. Why has this happened? And what does that mean for Israel's democracy going forward?
1: So Netanyahu has resorted to these populist devices to polarize society in order to ensure that he remains in power. And we are living in an era of populist nationalism, where there's a lot of anger at the elite and um and and as in you know many other countries are experiencing this phenomenon in israel the elite is seen as the left and so the state's major institutions what we might consider the gatekeepers of democracy like the media and the courts and the police and even the army to some extent they're they're all perceived as part of the elite and what populist nationalists do is they downplay minority rights because they have this majoritarian conception, this idea that we should allow the public to decide, Um, let the people determine our future, not the judges who are not elected, not the media, nobody elects them, but the people. That's kind of this majority, uh, majoritarian idea of, of democracy. And Netanyahu and his allies have stepped up these attacks on the courts now that his corruption trial is underway. So he's referred, for example, he's referred to his trial as a coup, an attempt to remove him from office since he couldn't be removed at the ballot box. And what we're seeing is uh, Netanyahu and his supporters attempting to essentially delegitimize the courts and those other gatekeepers. of democracy similar to what uh, Victor Orban and other populist nationalists in Europe and elsewhere have been doing.
0: It's time to take five. This is when you, our guests, get to daydream out loud and reorder the world as you'd like it to be by single-handedly instituting five policies or practices that would change the world for the better. We've been talking about Israel, but we're at a time where the upcoming U.S. election looms large. What five practices would you institute to improve the U.S.'s global standing in the world?
1: First, we must abandon the president's America first mantra, which has sent the wrong message to the world and embrace instead a collaborative foreign policy approach. We're all in this together. Second, we must reaffirm our commitment to NATO and reassure our allies that they can rely on us. Third, we can begin to rebuild our global standing by renewing our leadership in tackling global issues, starting with climate change, which the Pentagon identifies as a national security threat. Fourth, we must take a forceful stance against egregious human rights violations and lead the effort to end genocide, beginning with China's genocide against the Uyghurs. And fifth, we should return to our traditional role of an honest broker in the Middle East by resuming US-mediated peace talks between Israelis and the Palestinians, prodding both sides as needed to help realize the two-state solution before it's too late.
0: Thank you. Since April 2019, Israel has had three inconclusive elections, which sounds like a nightmare for the people who live there. Though Netanyahu has been indicted on corruption charges, he still managed to strike a coalition deal with his opponent, Benny Gantz, after the third, and they now share power under a unity government. So Benny Gantz ran against Netanyahu during the elections, vowing that he would never serve under Netanyahu as the prime minister, but there he is. Uh, he ended up agreeing to share power. How much of this move was spurred by the coronavirus crisis versus other political um, forces? And do you think that COVID-19 and the crisis pandemic has in any way served as a way to help Netanyahu stay in power, even though his response has been... Criticized.
1: The coronavirus was the pretext for this government, what they call a national unity emergency government. What Netanyahu really had in mind was his own political survival. Um, he's been involved in this ongoing effort to get immunity from prosecution, which he still hasn't gotten because he just doesn't have the number, the number of votes he needs. So, uh, which, by the way, has, has fueled speculation that he may even call for a fourth election in the near future if he doesn't get anywhere. Uh, uh, with Gantz. Now, Gantz, Benny Gantz, he's a new politician and a relatively naive one. So I believe that his intentions were less cynical, uh, but he was gullible because he enters this government, uh, again, thinking that they're going to make some big difference here in in the fight against coronavirus. And and maybe he also thought that he could uh, have more influence from within the government than in the opposition. Uh, but I say he was gullible because they created this rotation agreement that would, in theory, enable him to become prime minister in a year and a half, replacing Netanyahu. But it's, this is a commitment that Netanyahu has no intention whatsoever to keep. And I think maybe even Gantz is beginning to realize that as well. Uh, nevertheless, for Netanyahu, this was a kind of a big political victory because he managed to not only form this government, but he managed to split the blue and white. Party, which was the chief opposition, uh, the, the party that finally threatened to destroy uh, many years of Likud rule under his leadership. But this is a government that is bloated. There are 36 ministers and 16 deputy, min- uh, deputy ministers, so that that's unprecedented. Israel is now experiencing a second wave of the coronavirus, which is far worse than the original one. And so, not surprisingly, the government is at the moment very unpopular.
0: The parallels with what we're seeing in other countries, including and especially the U.S., are almost so obvious that you know, I it, it's just a, it's just shocking. Um, you, you include things like trying to have your own media. Um, and you could make a parallel with the U.S. with Fox Media, which is or Fox News, which for better or for worse, uh, the president appears to consider uh, a media outlet that's in his court. Even some of the names are the same. Sheldon Adelson, obviously a, a figure in U.S. politics. And you talk about this shift toward populist nationalism worldwide. So where, in your mind, does Netanyahu fit in with this trend of world leaders edging away from traditional democratic norms. And if we're thinking about perhaps a democratic scale that includes people like Poland's Duda and Russia's Putin and Viktor Orban and Trump, where would you place Netanyahu and why?
1: Netanyahu himself uh, has evolved, I would say, in this issue. So he's become much more of a populist nationalist uh, in recent years. Uh, He wasn't quite this bad early on, although he was always a divisive figure. Uh, But the populist uh, legislation and rhetoric is something that we didn't quite see up until uh, maybe five years ago. And so I would say he preceded people like Trump and Bolsonaro. Uh, At the same time, he's been adopting the same kind of rhetoric that some of these leaders are using. I mean, he never used to use uh, the phrase fake news until he saw Trump using it. Uh, He never used to use the word witch hunt until uh, President Trump started using it. So he's definitely picking up things that he thinks could help him with his base. And um, and so that's why democracy activists and advocates are very concerned that Israel has been moving in a very illiberal direction in recent years with a slew of bills uh, that are uh, essentially anti-democratic. Uh, certainly anti-liberal, and uh, not to mention the rhetoric, which is the kind of rhetoric that we, we hear from Duda, that we hear from Bolsonaro uh, and Duterte and and uh, Erdogan in Turkey and others.
0: Guy, you mentioned earlier that in Israel, religion and politics tend to intersect pretty frequently. And I wonder, is Netanyahu a particularly religious person?
1: No, not at all. Uh, but his base uh, tends to be uh, more religious. Um, he, clearly, there are a lot of secular people who support him as well. But if you're looking at the ideologues, the people who are behind the settler lobby, for example, most of them are religious. Uh, and Netanyahu is well aware of it and very uh, sensitive to that. Uh, more importantly, politically, he he doesn't only need his base; he needs to make sure that the religious parties are unified in supporting him because you know you need a coalition government in israel and he would have a very difficult time piecing together coalition without his quote-unquote natural allies now who are the natural allies there are the ultra-orthodox parties they're the uh the the settler party uh which is currently called yamina they've changed their name a few times they're right now sitting in the opposition but they very well might join the coalition in the future and uh, and so Netanyahu is very sensitive to uh, to this notion that uh, he can't offend uh, the religious; he can't afford to lose them for, uh, in terms of su- political support that he needs from them.
0: Guy, this will be the last question. We talked a little bit about how Netanyahu isn't isn't is and isn't ideologically driven in some of the policy choices he makes. But regardless, the shift has been slightly away from what we would consider democratic norms. Do you think that there's a way for the corrosion of Israel's democracy to be reversed with Netanyahu still in power? Or do you think that is something that can only take place with a new prime minister?
1: Um, I think that, well, first of all, I think it would have to take place with a new prime minister. There's no way that this is going to be reversed at this point, given how desperate Netanyahu is to um, stay out of prison, really um, and, and, and try to avoid this, uh, this trial. He, uh, he's clearly not interested in preserving democracy at this point. He's interested in preserving his, his job, his career. What's problematic is that the opposition in Israel has traditionally been very weak, uh, for many years now. And, uh, and so he, unfortunately, and and one might even say the same thing about Trump in the United States uh, he's kind of a symptom of a larger problem, and the question is whether the quote unquote democratic camp is going to be able to kind of win this this uh this fight for uh, for israeli democracy and right now it's an uphill battle because there hasn't really been a strong leader who has emerged uh who can take Netanyahu on so while you know you have these opposition politicians. That accuse Netanyahu of corruption and say he's he needs to go and he needs to go to retirement uh, there there are you know wider issues here that they haven't fully addressed that I think are problematic. so it may take years uh, to kind of rebuild and strengthen Israeli democracy, and my hope is that some of the centrist uh, leaders who might have some influence in the in the near future, uh, and I'm thinking of Yair Lapita's is one, and maybe even Benny Gantz, uh, will kind of put democracy at the forefront of, uh, of national priorities and will um, stop the, the, the corrosion of these um, attacks on the gatekeepers of democracy.
0: Dev, thank you for joining Big World to discuss Benjamin Netanyahu. It's been a treat to speak with you. Thank you so much. Just a note that we recorded this episode with Guy Ziv prior to the agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates that was signed on August 13, 2020, in case you're wondering why we didn't mention it in our discussion. Big World is a production of the School of International Service at American University. Our podcast is available on our website, on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you'll leave us a good rating or a review, it'll be like finding that the release date for that new book you want to read is actually tomorrow. Our theme music is It Was Just Cold by Andrew Codman. Until next time.